Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Let's get right into it. Thanks for joining us again, Tron. Absolutely. It 100% my pleasure. What was so interesting about the last podcast we did, which was on certain aspects of Doritos that you had uncovered and then I hopefully added to, but it shows that how many life lessons can be learned from the obscure parts of our life that we just take for granted. No, absolutely. I mean, it was like 37 years. I never thought about Doritos and I'm like, oh my God. I yeah. look at it I'm like this is absolutely wild and a complete afterthought, like you said, right? Never thought about it, but the amount of effort that goes into it is astounding. Right. It was it was lessons on food, lessons on investing, because why did Archie West decide that this was the product he was gonna put his entire life behind? Lessons on the value of data, because they use data in the they spent $50 million on data in 1994 when they redesigned the Dorito and, and on and on. There were so many lessons for business, for life, everything. So I, uh, I just want to say is with these consumer products, I've actually realized when you dig into anything that's like super, super popular, like uh, McDonald's or Starbucks, there's various consumer facing things. Like I recently looked at like the top 50 market cap companies in the world. And I looked at the most consumer facing ones, McDonald's, Starbucks, uh, obviously the big tech is super consumer facing. But when you start digging into those, that's where you kind of find these things that you've mentioned where you never really thought about it, but then you start teasing them out. You're like, this is crazy, right? And then obviously Dorito is part of Pepsi uh, Cola, which is one of the largest CPG companies in the world. Yeah. And and also it's interesting too, like you mentioned McDonald's and, and you've tweeted recently about Starbucks. Like people don't realize that companies aren't always what they seem. So like McDonald's seems like a food company, but in reality, as people now mostly know, it's a big real estate company where they then you know, lease their, their real estate to franchisees and, and so on. And Starbucks, as you point out, is actually a bank. Or, or it could be, right? There's three of them actually in the, uh, in the annals of company X really does Y when you think it does Z. I think you named the first two, which is McDonald's is really a real estate company. Starbucks is kind of moonlighting as a bank. The other super popular one, which I'm sure you will know, is Harvard's really a hedge fund yeah. that just also happens to have a undergraduate and a graduate program, right? Same with Yale. Well, and also like you could even go, I don't know, it depends on how far you take the analogy, but like Google's really an advertising agency. Uh, yes. You know, <laughs> and... Facebook to some extent is largely a dating website. So I don't know. No, exactly. And then Amazon suddenly just has this random $30 billion ad business on the side now. Yeah. It's amazing how many, like I was the other day just looking for obscure patents and it's weird. All the things that Google is patenting just left and right. Like their latest batch of patents, they're really getting into, uh, AI powered security of smart homes. Like that's like, seems to be a big right. initiative for them. They've also patented 
anti-gravity shoes for some reason. And um, they're doing a lot of work on using, using AI to determine where your eye is looking to pick a menu item. So you could pick a menu item without actually clicking on the menu item. So and these are just all recent patents. It sounds like uh, round two of the Google Glass is coming out, right? You remember when the glass holes were making the rounds like a decade ago? Oh, yeah. It was freaky. Like, I remember one time I just, like, turned around at a restaurant, and I saw someone looking at me, and he was wearing the glasses, and the light was on, <laughs> and he's, like, staring right at me. So you just wonder, like, what is going on there? But I want to. I have a question for you. Yeah. I love the Starbucks stuff, and you also talked about um, why about Red Bull and, and, and how they were getting involved in Formula One racing. But there was a recent thread you you wrote or a newsletter you wrote that I found fascinating, which was about the, how The Godfather almost didn't happen. And there were so many things in that that I didn't know. And you you don't have to have seen The Godfather to understand the importance of the things that we're going to talk about, although I highly recommend the movie. But would you want to talk yes, about that? absolutely. I would want to talk about that. I I bought so many books because of the 50th anniversary of the Godfather's release. You know, whenever something gets re-released and then they just find a reason to remarket it, and then suckers like I'm those su I'm that sucker that purchases those things. I, I would too, by the way, because look, Godfather the Godfather really was one of the best movies in history. In fact, if someone hasn't seen the Godfather and, and you and you're like, ah, I don't want to watch it. It's an old movie, whatever. Just watch. There's a lot of clips on YouTube to demonstrate the acting of yes. Al Pacino or Robert De Niro or Marlon Brando. Watch any of those, and it will make you want to watch the entire, at least Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. Well, the thing with The Godfather is whether or not you've seen it, and honestly, at this point, uh, I don't even want to do spoiler alerts anymore. Like I said it in my newsletter. I'm like, why am I doing a spoiler alert for a 50-year-old movie? Like That's not on me yeah. to be telling somebody <laughs> to watch it, right? right. But it's just so culturally ingrained now, right? It's it's everywhere. Like, uh, uh, what was Vito Corleone's? Make him offer they can't refuse. The horse's head. Uh, everything that Sonny or Michael says through the flick, they, they show up everywhere. Yeah. No, you're right. So so actually, what what are, yeah, revenge is a dish that t tastes best served cold. I even forgot that that exactly. was in The Godfather. It, it's not personal. It's strictly business. Exactly. I forgot that was from The Godfather. And of course, the classic one, this was in Godfather 3. Like the only classic thing I think in Godfather 3 was just when I thought I was out, they pulled me they back pull in. Pulled me back in. Exactly. I mean, that was repeated <laughs> a billion times on The Sopranos because yep. the guy was imitating Al Pacino in Godfather 3. No, 100%. Well, uh, so James, I know you're friends with Brian Koppelman. And the reason I bring this up is because I've heard him talk about Francis Ford Coppola's other uh, classic, Apocalypse Now, a number of times. Uh, and the reason I bring that up is because the I didn't realize that the making of The Godfather was almost as crazy as the making of Apocalypse Now, which is like epically famous. Uh, it was filmed shortly after the fall of Saigon in the Philippines under the Marcus regime. Uh, crazy things happened there. But as I was re reading about The Godfather, I'm like, whoa, this is like almost on par. So Coppola has just tortured himself to make these classics. No, and not only that, that very year, 1972, when The Godfather was made, one of the movies that it was in the closest competition with at the Oscars was a movie called The Conversation, which was an unbelievably good movie, not as popular, but also directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, I just want to, to, to clarify. It was 74. It was Godfather oh, 2 and Conversation. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 74. So, so, I mean, he was making, he was like nonstop making these incredibly good movies at a time when, as you point out, it was very difficult for Hollywood. And so people people kind of don't give him enough credit. I mean, they do give him a lot of credit, but 
he was an incredible director back then, you know, then and now, but when he was getting a start, it was it was an unbelievable run he had. Well, I did ask on Twitter if anybody could find a run from, uh, as you mentioned, it was 1972 Godfather 1, uh, 74 had the conversation and Godfather 2, and then 79 was Apocalypse Now. So over seven years, he created for sure three of the top 20 movies ever, and then the conversation nominated for Best Picture, not a slouch, but incredible seven-year run. And uh, in his 30s, just as unimaginable, the creative output he went through then. Yeah, and you you have this, um, you, you took some lists from... Uh, the greatest films ever, according to IMDb, the American Film Institute, and the Hollywood Reporter. The Godfather, for Hollywood Reporter, The Godfather was number one, then Wizard of Oz, Citizen Kane, Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction. American Film Institute, The Godfather was number two. IMDb, Godfather was was number two. Shawshank was was number one in that one, and I guess uh, yeah. for the AFI, Citizen Kane was number one. I like that they had uh, Casablanca, uh, which I think is one of the best ever. But Absolutely. Yeah, and Godfather Two is also listed on two of these lists. So, so I mean, it's definitely had so much influence on future movies, future shows. I mean, you mentioned Koppelman, but but not so much as show Billions, but the kind of competitor show uh, that's on HBO Succession is very much right. Godfather-like in terms of the relationships in the family. And I actually never thought about that until I really dug into this piece. Because obviously, uh, my instinct and growing up, my memory of The Godfather was really was this crime epic, right? I, obviously, family based. But then it was literally Vito with his three sons, right? Is uh, Sonny, uh, Michael, uh, and Fredo. And then Succession under HBO has the battle between the siblings. And, uh, and what's funny is Tom Hagen, which is Robert Duvall in The Godfather series, who is not a blood child and gets moved aside by Michael in, in the second Godfather. Tom is also the name in succession of the non-blood sibling type of character. Oh, yeah. Shiv's I, husband. I wonder if that's on purpose. I wonder, too. It's like, this can't be a coincidence. It's like, it's pretty close, right? Well, and they do several times in succession. They do call, you know, one of the less intelligent siblings, Fredo, all the <laughs> yeah. time, even to his face. So, no, like, exactly. like, if someone's a Fredo, they're usually, like, the dumber, older brother. <laughs> no, exactly, right? And, uh, well, that, 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 that's the thing I added at the bottom when Shaquille O'Neal was going through his co-stars. Yeah. He was comparing all of them to the, the uh, Godfather characters. I forgot. He said, did he say Kobe was uh, Fredo? I forgot. He, who no, was... he said Kobe was uh, Sonny. So, like, oh. uh, would do anything to kind of win. Uh, Michael was the more understanding and, uh, you know, like played the game well. And that was Dwayne Wade. So he, and then, uh, and then Penny Hardaway, unfortunately, was called Fredo. They never won a chip together. That's why. Oh, that's, that's funny. So, so yeah. So, but I was surprised to learn that The Godfather almost didn't happen. And in part because I didn't know this. Hollywood was in decline then. I, I, I didn't know. You said that uh, movie revenues went down. Yep in 1969 and 1970 what was going on then was it the rise of tv it was uh, it was the rise of tv was largely credited as you know oh here comes the new medium that's going to sweep out the old one so hollywood had kind of knocked away vaudeville theater so some of the most famous critics in the 60s of uh, the film industry or just observers were like what if film was just kind of this multi-decade thing that happened but then was totally, you know, subsequently taken over by television. I mean, we're kind of seeing it now with mobile, right? Like completely destroying uh, the old cable business. So it's not the first time that we're seeing different uh, media mediums uh, overtake a previous one. But that was part of it. 
And uh, as the studio model uh, uh, kind of became less profitable, and the example that I brought up, which was, it came from one of these Godfather documentaries, which was so fascinating, was in 1965, The Sound of Music comes out, and it makes $290 million on an $8 million budget, right? It's like one of the, and also to this day, one of the most revered Hollywood uh, epics ever. And then three years later, with the exact same director, star, cast, total flop. They did a movie with Julie Andrews called Star and made $14 million on a $14 million budget, which really means they lost money because uh, marketing is typically matched to the budget price, right? So um, That's that fascinating. Was, uh, like, what happened? It was just, this was, uh, this was indicative uh, from this Godfather documentary I watched of them saying this is basically the greatest example of how the industry was dying. People were losing interest. So 69 and 70 had the lowest foot traffic to theaters, basically from when uh, Hollywood really started taking over in the 20s, 30s and on. I mean, it kind of is a good lesson in that people keep predicting the, the decline of Hollywood. So, right. so here the rise of TV maybe was going to be the decline of Hollywood. Then the rise of DVDs was going to be the decline or, or CD-ROMs or whatever was going to be and VCRs was going to be the decline no one would have to go to a movie theater anymore because they could watch at home. And then the internet, everyone was going to watch on the internet. And then the pandemic, everyone was just going to watch on streaming services because nobody was allowed to go to a movie theater. And yet still movies are putting out blockbusters that are bigger than ever every year. Right. The, the Hollywood, the form of it, keeps existing, keeps being culturally relevant, right? I think a lot of the criticism now is the things that do succeed are these uh, uh, sequels, uh, comic book movie, you know, like uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe type content, which is true. And a lot of the creative talent has gone to television uh, over the past decade or two decades. Uh, but Hollywood is still culturally relevant. Uh, even uh, even after we saw what happened with the Oscars, we don't need to jump into the whole Will Smith, Chris uh, Rock fiasco, but you my know, favorite topic, though. But yes, <laughs> it's just been it's just been uh, talked about ad nauseum. I don't know if any of this any more to add, but uh, I think the Hollywood's decline. We definitely are feeling it again, and there is a parallel with the 60s, 70s, though, right? Uh, as mentioned, these large conglomerates were buying up the studios and entertainment uh, vessels, just like is happening now with big tech, right? Like Amazon just bought MGM. Uh, Disney just, uh, Disney acquired uh, 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 Fox. Uh, technically, Disney's not big tech, but they're turning into a big tech play with the, their streaming service. So we're talking 50 years ago, a similar transition was happening. You had these massive conglomerates like uh, Gulf and Western, which bought Paramount, Owned sixty five different companies, and they started off in the natural resources business. Yeah, they were like a they were like an oil company, right? Exactly. I think, J, I think they were J. Paul Getty's company. Yeah, I, I think that I think that was, uh, or at least he was involved with some of their businesses. And then Warner Brothers sold to Kinney, which was like uh, primarily involved in uh, funeral parlors and parking lots. So there's that parallel of the industry struggling, and they got bought out by bigger money players. Yeah, it's it's interesting because Hollywood's always. Hollywood by itself, a company, a Hollywood production company by itself is a hit and miss business. Like you can't predict profits. So Wall Street will never give a pure play on a, a movie company, a, a, a big valuation. But oddly, Kinney, which was like a parking lot, they own parking lots. It was this guy, Steve Ross, started this parking lot company. Parking lots and car washes and funeral parlors. Cash that's flow. a steady business. <laughs> yeah, so you can always predict what's going to happen this year, next year. And if he wants to grow, he just needs to buy more land to put parking lots and, and so on. So it became oddly a natural home for 
to to help stabilize these like so so Kenny bought Warner Brothers, but Kenny ultimately grew to be Time Warner, which you know owned HBO, Time Magazine, People Magazine, Sports Illustrated, Warner Brothers, New Line Cinema, Atlantic right. Records, you know all the Warner labels. It became this the, the biggest media company on the on the planet for a while, and now it's owned by um, I want to say Comcast or AT and T, one of them. I think AT and T. Right. No, it, yeah, eighteen. Well, actually, no. They spun it. They ended up spinning off some of the uh, properties uh, to combine with uh, Discovery to make this whole new streaming thing, right? I think that's happening right now, actually. Okay, it's it's so interesting. I used to I used to love following all that, but but you're right. So so corporate influence was you know Gulf and Western was taking over uh, Paramount, a, a funeral parlor company was taking over Warner Brothers, and on and on and on. So so there was the fear that these kind of talentless parking lot people would just produce bad movies. But by the way, I kind of, I think it kind of underlines that executives in general, and you kind of describe this later about the Godfather executives in general are, are there to kind of ruin the creative process. And, and it's only through the success of creatives like Francis Ford Coppola that, that we now know of these movies. If he had just listened to the executives, we never would have had the Godfather. Right. The pair, I mean, he, quotes a number of times how difficult it was, right? He said, and even the executives uh, uh, admit uh, on the Paramount side, which they won an Oscar for this, right? They made the greatest movie ever. They also talked about how brutal the experience was. And I think it's to what you mentioned. It's like, I mean, these was not, this was not kind of their main avenue, right? Imagine you're just a corporate exec. Uh, you're running all these businesses, uh, all the cash flow stuff you mentioned. You're given this asset where it's completely hit or miss. The industry's kind of dying and you're being tasked with creating the next blockbuster. Yeah, and I mean, at that, and it was weird too that, uh, so so, you described the story well of Mario Puzo, who's the the yes. author of The Godfather. He had written two books before The Godfather, and they were kind of literary novels, uh, meaning I don't know, they were like had deeper, more emotional concepts supposedly, and weren't larger than life stories. And so he couldn't make any money on these literary novels. He was a good writer, so he said, "Screw it, I'm gonna make." the most extravagant novel I could think of about these rumors I heard as a kid about the mafia. And in 1969, the year the book came out, it sold 9 million copies. I mean, I don't even know if right. novels today sell 9 million copies when they come out. Like James, you've written books. Like what is a good number? I've heard like if you sell 10,000 books, it's like amazing in 2022, right? You could make the New York Times bestseller list with as little as 2,000 copies sold. Okay. And so 9 million is astounding. Yeah. Like, Ten thousand, by the way, is is a home run for most books. Okay, that's like that's like probably one percent of books. And I have one book, uh, Choose Yourself, which has sold over a million. And then I'm not even sure if the rest of my books combined have sold over a million. Right. So, and I've written over twenty books. I've definitely so, read Choose Yourself, by the way. Just gonna throw that out there. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, and um, I I like I was in an airport the other day, and I was going through TSA, and the TSA guy who was looking at my bag said, ah, oh, I read choose yourself. So amazing. So I know when you have, when you have like a million copies sold, a lot of people have read it or looked at it or whatever. So, so, but for him to sell 9 million, like that's, that's enormous. Like that's, and he, and that was in one year, 1969. So then I guess Robert Evans bought the rights to the book. Well, I just want to say it was a super interesting. They agreed to the rights of the book before it even came out. So this is what, this is all part of uh, when you said at the top, 
the Godfather almost never got made. It's like every single part of the way, it almost never got made, right? So like in 1965, Puzo was a semi-failed author. You mentioned dude, he'd done two books, not super commercially successful. He owed 20K in gambling debts. Uh, uh, and you alluded to, he knew these stories from the mafia world. And his books previously had stories about these characters. And his agent's just like, man, just write a book about the mafia. He's like, okay, well, I don't really know anything, but I guess I'll do research. Paramount, Robert Evans, uh, they agreed uh, to, they read the advance of his book. It was like, I think uh, 60 pages. Yeah, they bought the project after 60 pages of uh, what would be 450 pages. And uh, they really got a great deal out of it, which uh, I mentioned in the article. They paid him uh, 12.5K for the book. And they capped his max payout at 80K if they ever made a movie. So it's like one of the greatest deals ever. Godfather ended up making 250 mil plus, which inflation adjusted is probably close to a bill. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely about a billion dollars. So and so he didn't make any more. Well, he made a hundred thousand dollars on the script. Exactly. He they paid him on the script, and uh, he would end up writing Godfather uh, two and three, and then that was just on the if they made a movie. He probably also got royalties for sure on the book for years and years and years. Yeah, but you figure though the book was probably selling for a dollar, so he probably made ten cents. <laughs> so look, that was still a decent amount of money. If he yeah. made you know close to a million dollars on on Godfather that first year, he was a, a rich guy, and and, and even and today's he dollars, his debts, but, right? And that was why yeah, he, he definitely got rid of his debts. <laughs> so, but it, it, a that shows you it's really hard. He was forty five years old. He had published two books, which many people would that's their life dream is to publish one book. Yep. He published two great books. They were well received and and by critics but they just didn't sell. It's really hard to make a living as a writer. Absolutely. And you kind of have to go for it. Like he he did this larger than life story. By the way, have you ever read the the book, The Godfather? I have not read Mario Puzo's book, embarrassingly. I, I know I should. It's it's a great, great novel. And most people haven't read it because this is one of those few cases where the movie is at least as good as the book. I mean, the movies are amazing. So, but the book was also very unique and amazing. And he would, it was a huge book. And there's a lot of stories in the book that don't make it into the movie. One of the stories, he goes on for like 60 or 70 pages about this one minor character in the book. And I forget which one now, but she, it's all about how she's going through this um, vagina tightening surgery. <laughs> and it takes up like 60 pages in the book, this whole experience of this woman. But that of course is not in the movie at all. But that's the kind of writer he was. He was like all over the place. And he put together this amazing epic movie because there were so many stories in it didn't moby dick have like a hundred pages just about will capturing uh, equipment it sounds like that type of random tangent yeah the only the difference is a little bit is that puzo was very very story driven so he was telling okay. a story whereas whereas herman melville i do suspect probably was not as good a writer as as the educational system claims because right that was boring <laughs> as hell that book because of stuff like that, yeah. like who wants to hear all about whale equipment? I mean, even like a hundred pages on spears. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Hemingway sort of did it right with old man in the sea, which it, literally minimalism. Like he kept all that. He, he wrote about that stuff, but kept it to a minimum at, at the way the old man would see it, as opposed to the way a reader might yeah. need to have a manual about it. But yeah, the Godfather was an excellent novel. I highly recommend it. And Evans was smart. Like Robert Evans, there's been documentaries about him too. He, he was a particularly yep. interesting movie executive. Like what was his story? Well, he was definitely larger than life. He was, uh, he came out of nowhere. So this is the excerpt from his obituary. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2019. It starts from the New York Times. He was a woman's pants salesman who went to Hollywood and then 
met an actress at the Beverly's Hotel pool. And this actress ended up getting him into the film industry. And he ended up at Paramount. And you mentioned uh, Apuzzo's book. But also in that year, 69 or 70, uh, the year after, Evans had bought another book called Love Story. It was the other, it was like the two of the uh, number two best-selling books ever in that decade was The Godfather and Love Story. And he made a movie based on Love Story. So he had one massive success with a book. So he's like, I'm going to try to do it again with The Godfather. So uh, kind of fell into this job as a producer. Uh, I'll add one note uh, from the 1980s before we continue the Godfather story, but he was involved in a crazy scandal. He did another movie with uh, Coppola. Uh, let me see. What the, I think it was called The Cotton Club. But the TLDR about it was he co-produced it with somebody. The other individual he co-produced it with was kidnapped and murdered. And they the, the other co-producer was kidnapped and murdered because he was supposed to get somebody else in on the movie deal and that ended up not happening. And then Robert Evans spent almost a decade, I think, trying to prove his innocence, uh, that he wasn't involved for this murder for hire. So absolutely wild. Do you think he was involved? He was cleared. He was cleared. Uh, but but do you think he was involved? <laughs> I I have I can't pass judgment on it. I don't know enough uh, about the case, but uh, uh, the court of law says he was not. So I'm just gonna go with that. All right, good good enough. And but then so so he's the one though, like like the produce. He was basically the producer, and he has to put together the the director, the actors, and so on. Yep. And I I also read initially that they didn't. They didn't want Coppola at first. They wanted like Elias Kazan or some of these older directors. Like what happened there? So uh, uh, everything we're saying just ties back to the exact thing you said. Like every step of the way is something that made it not happen, right? So we just talked about industries dying, a conglomerate inspiring it that want to kill the creativity. And then Puzo doesn't even want to read the book that's the source material. So like the next thing is, uh, as you mentioned, they didn't even want Coppola to direct it. He was the, the 12th option. Well, technically, 12 people rejected uh, the Godfather film. Uh, and Coppola was one of the 12. But you mentioned one of the directors that they approached. They approached 11 other ones. And some of the reasons that they rejected it was actually you already touched on. A lot of them were turned away by that vagina uh, surgery store. They're like, what is this? Really? And we didn't like, yeah, they were just I like, this that. is like, uh, they're like, this is a trashy book. That was their perception. And uh, the the Sicilian mobster theme had already flopped recently. So Kirk Douglas did a movie in, I believe it was 1968, called The Brotherhood. It was about the Sicilian uh, mafia. Complete and utter flop. And uh, in the previous, uh, I think, 10, 15 years, there was a couple other gangster movies. Uh, one was called Pay or Die. Another one was called Hoodlum Empire. But none of these movies did well. And uh, what was interesting and helped the film in the long run with Coppola was he actually was Italian-American. The other 11 directors that Evans and Paramount approached were not Italian American. So as they're trying to as the, the Paramount was trying to make The Godfather happen, there's a ton of pushback by Italian American organizations. They thought the portrayal of uh, Italian Americans was showing them, "Hey, they're all mobsters. They're all part of the mafia," right? So one of the Italian American organizations actually had the word mafia 
taken out of the script. So it's not even mentioned in The Godfather. And same with the the Sicilian term, La Cosa Nostra, which uh, most of us are probably know as the basically Italian version of the mafia. So both those terms are no are not in the movie because of uh, how hot of a topic the Italian mob was at in the early 70s. Obviously now, you know, mob films have over the past decades since The Godfather have been everywhere. But uh, just to circle back to your original question, yeah, they did not think Coppola was good enough to do the movie. And then they ended up relenting because of how much pushback they got from the Italian-American community. And they just figured, it very cynically, to uh, mind you, that, hey, maybe we can push this project out the door if we can say, by the way, we have an Italian-American director. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? 
So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or a pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So it's interesting, and I didn't know this. Apparently, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, I guess Steven Spielberg, like some of these other famous who, who became famous directors. All homies, they, all homies. Yeah, this is really a fascinating thing because, well, well, describe what they did. They started their own little studio because they were getting frustrated with the big studio scene. Yep, exactly. They uh, so this group came up together. Um, they we talked about how corporations were taking over the Hollywood studios, and you, we actually hear a lot about now the corporatizing of Hollywood. A similar thing was happening in the late '60s, and a lot of these directors. We'll just rattle them off right now because this is a, such an amazing group. They were they were collectively known as the movie brats. So you had Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, uh, Coppola, um, George Lucas. And Brian De Palma were all kind of part of this group. They they wanted to be away from the Hollywood system. They wanted to tell their own type of stories. And uh, Lucas and Coppola specifically joined together to form an independent studio called uh, American Zotrope. And Zotrope uh, was waiting. They're financially quite strapped. And Lucas 
who was a bit younger than Coppola, but they were kind of creative partners and partners together. He was kind of pushing. He's like, man, we need something. Like, we need a hit, man. And Godfather ended up being the first hit for kind of this group of uh, directors. So this is what happened. Godfather hits. It gives uh, American Zotrope, the production company for uh, Lucas and uh, Coppola, uh, a cash cushion, right? Because Godfather is a huge hit. The year later, American Graffiti comes out, which is about George Lucas's uh, childhood growing up, uh, I believe, in California. And that was another big hit. I think it made a hundred mil on like a seven million dollar budget. And then obviously what happens with American Graffiti? George Lucas now gets to write his own check. And I've written a previous story about how Lucas was able to take the American Graffiti W Oh, victory and turn that into Star Wars and not only turn it into Star Wars, negotiate one of the greatest deals ever where he said, I'll do Star Wars, but I get to keep all the sequel and merchandising rights. So that's something that we could talk about, I'm sure, another time. And then I'll rattle off a couple more. Uh, Martin Scorsese did Mean Streets in 1973. Uh, you mentioned the conversation with uh, Coppola in 74, the same year he did Godfather. Uh, Brian De Palma did Carrie in 1976, mm. the Stephen King horror. And then Spielberg uh, did a, a little movie called Jaws in 1975. And then Scorsese, uh, last one I'll mention is Taxi Driver in uh, 76. Man, and Star such, Wars 77. So all of those movies you could see now and they don't appear dated. Like they're such great Incredible films. movies. And so did they all, I didn't know this, did they all make money on, on these films? Like for instance, did, did George Lucas make money on The Godfather? I don't know the setup uh, with uh, American Zotrope, but it, as, a, as a shared production company, so the, that production company was just him and Coppola primarily. They were the two co-owners of that production company. So I'm sure that they split the goodies on that and then American Graffiti afterwards. Yeah, American Graffiti was great. Uh, and if, like you mentioned, he used that to, I think he also made one other movie, THX 1138, which is kind of- Oh, that was before. That was before uh, American oh, okay. Graffiti. Yeah, you're right. Uh, and then Star Wars, of course. So, so- and then, okay, so Coppola, so so everybody thought mafia movies would be a flop. That also surprises me because now it's a common trope. Like, let's take a secretive organization that where there's family succession issues and there's violence, and you're also going up against the government, but your hero is a bad guy. This is like a common trope now, and I'm surprised it would be not looked on as a as a a, a formula for success back then. Well, it was uh, the it was the Sopranosization of uh, of of this type of content, right? Like Tony Soprano being the anti-hero, and then you had Walter White with Breaking Bad, and then you had all the villains, quote unquote, in The Wire. But in The Wire, you realize that everyone's the villain, and that the whole system is the villain, yeah. right? So uh, I think uh, between the Godfather. And uh, I mean, probably the mid '90s, the idea of like the anti-hero was not really there. And then previous to that, also the idea of the anti-hero was not super prominent. And uh, I do want to emphasize that the fact that a lot of these previous gangster movies, uh, Italian gangster movies, were done by non-Italians, I think that really did play into it. Um, uh, they were done. Uh, uh, not surprisingly, a lot of the the director and acting talent was Jewish around that time. And that was mentioned in a lot of these uh, uh, documentaries around the Godfather. Well, and also you mentioned, and this is probably related, but like uh, the studio wanted someone like Robert Redford, who's the least oh. Italian looking person on the yeah. planet to, to play the role of Michael Corleone. Uh, how is that even possible? Well, this goes back. Uh, now, now we're moving on to the next point. This is now the fifth reason why this film almost never happened. Right? Uh, actually, I skipped so the we, fifth we one. We'll, get, we'll get back to the fifth one, but I, I, I'm just amazed by it. this is the oh, sixth yeah. one. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll we'll talk that, that you're the casting. That is amazing. Um, the interesting thing about uh, uh, Robert Redford was he was obviously a bigger star. Uh, let me see what, what year Sundance came out. I think Sundance came out the uh, Sundance uh, Butch. 
I think that was 69. Yeah, so 69, uh, Butch Cassidy, Sundance King comes out. Obviously, a massive uh, hit. Uh, Robert Redford's a huge star. The book, and I didn't know this, so you may remember, but in Mario Puzo's The Godfather, Michael Corleone actually looks like Robert Redford. He is a tall, handsome individual. Al Pacino is much shorter and much darker. So the casting actually went against the book. That was the reason the studio, part of the reason the studio wanted it. And also Robert Redford was a star while Al Pacino was a stage actor, but not well known. Ah, so I mean, Al Pacino now in retrospect is so perfect, but I still would have a hard time believing Robert Redford was was Italian. <laughs> no, exactly, right? And uh, hard time believing he's Italian. And they brought in, so uh, God, these these the Godfather the documentaries that I added in the YouTube links for this are so good. But this showed uh, James Caan, who ended up playing uh, a Sonny, talked about how they basically brought in hundreds of actors to audition for Michael. The studio just did not want Al Pacino. And uh, Robert Redford was the one they wanted, really, really wanted him. And uh, we'll talk about, I'm sure, uh, shortly uh, in a bit, Marlon Brando, how they also didn't want him. But uh, yeah, that was the uh, Al Pacino, uh, Robert Redford story. So, so how, how, did, how did Al Pacino convince them? Uh, it was Coppola that convinced them. Coppola, uh, from the documentary, James Caan was saying that Coppola basically shoved it down the studio's throat. He just like, at every turn... He would bring Mike uh, Al Pacino back to uh, do Michael. Like no matter who acted, it was just so clear he was positioning for Michael and just basically forced it to happen. That's so interesting. And yeah, Marlon Brando. So so obviously he was great in On the Waterfront. Obviously he was great in The Godfather. They didn't. The studio didn't want Brando, but it wasn't necessarily because of his acting skill. I guess even then he was like considered a problem. He was a so he won uh, On the Waterfront the Oscar in 1955, and. Uh, uh, that was, I believe, his mid-30s or early 30s. But he became very toxic as an asset. And uh, the head of Paramount said, we will never have Marlon Brando in a film. Like, his reputation was so bad. And uh, they basically said, okay, to Francis Ford Coppola, if you want Brando, this is what's going to happen. Co- uh, Brando's going to have to put up a, like a million-dollar bond to in case he ruins the production of the film. And only that, we're we're gonna pay him skill. Like we're gonna pay him whatever a regular actor from the street will get paid by the guild or whatever the equivalent was. We don't care if he's won an Oscar. Like he is such a like a, a tarnished product to us. These are the terms that we are gonna uh, uh, bring to you. So he only got paid scale for uh, the Godfather. Do you know why he was such a bad? Uh, he was considered so toxic. He was just bad on set. Like uh, even even uh, even following this, like the stories about him on the Apocalypse Now set are like awful like he was like he showed up massively overweight maybe even obese like kind of refused to do xyz ended up giving an iconic performance but like he was like known as a very very difficult individual to work with and so so okay so the the studio also wanted to film it in like st louis they wanted to they wanted to do it as low budget as possible could you imagine it not being like in a classic new york city setting Exactly, right? Exactly. They, uh, they wa- so they, they, it actually goes back to uh, you talking about Mario Puzo's, uh, what, 9 million copies sold. They wanted to strike while the iron was hot. So in their head, they're like, let's just rush something out the door. This IP is so hot right now that we will just take anything. And we don't really care what it is, right? That's why they're saying, let's just film in St. Louis. We don't have to worry about uh, paying extra and getting all these different filming licenses in New York City, which is probably more difficult than St. Louis. And then let's set it in 1970s instead of the 
the 40s uh, or post-World War II, which is when the book and the movie now that we know is actually set. That way they don't have to do the costume design and the set design. They're like, let's just get this thing out the door so we can make money. It was like very cynical, right? And then and then they, they were going to um, fire Coppola all along until this, the one scene where exactly michael tips over to to the dark side yeah it was uh i mean it's so i i, I put a spoiler alert in there but i'm just gonna talk about it. if you haven't seen the godfather now as and james and i talked about it, it's like oh, that's on you at this point yeah pro- but, but you know uh, my, yeah, my the, wife hadn't seen it until during the pandemic i i forced her to watch it and of course it was great we watched all three loved but it? uh did she love it yeah yeah i mean i've seen it like 10 or 20 times it's the most amazing movie no exactly and uh well you you mentioned it. it's the scene uh, in the basically the middle of the movie when uh, Michael uh, goes to kill the individuals that set up uh, his a uh, hit on his father, and uh, after the the head of Gulf and Western saw that they're like that's when they stopped breathing down Coppola's neck because up to that point they hated everything. They're complaining about literally everything. It's like the music sucks, the lighting is terrible, like this movie is too dark, and uh, Brando and Pacino aren't cutting it. They had a director waiting in the wings, like literally to replace a uh, 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 Coppola on a moment's notice. But after that scene, he had free sailing, and it is one of, I mean, to this day, one of the most iconic scenes in film history. It it is, and and but there were great scenes before then. For instance, when the father is in the hospital, and you know. Al Pacino is you see how cool and calm he is when he's outside yes. and the bad guys sort of drive by and the, and the other guy I forget who the other guy was he kind of like falls to pieces and that gives you a sense that oh wait there's more to Michael Corleone than than it seems no exactly and I, I if you I would love to chat about like the the, the journey the character for Michael right because it's like the story that I didn't realize until recently, because I watched it when I was younger and watched it over the years, but I never really dug into the story. It's like the, the movie is about American capitalism versus the, the, the mob way. And Michael, which is, you can watch it now. It's amazing. In the beginning of the movie, he's wearing a U.S. military suit at the wedding. So it clearly is a juxtaposition between him versus his family, right? It's like so beautifully done. He's like, I am, my allegiance is to the United States of America. Whereas everybody else is fit as if they're at a wedding, right? They're all wearing tuxedos and they're all as, as with the family. But then, as you mentioned, at, when he's at the hospital after Vito Corleone's father gets shot, he starts showing the bravery and asserting himself. And then after the scene where he kills these two individuals at this Italian American restaurant, that's when he fully converts over. And then by the end of the movie, it's clear who his allegiance is to is to the family. Yeah. You know, and it's funny though, because you think of a soldier as someone who is about America, their job is to defend America. And yet, you know, as you point out, this, this movie is very much about America and American capitalism. You would think, no, wait, they're criminals. They're outside of capitalism. But even the, the very first scene, you see um, Luca Brasi, he's like practicing what he's going to say to, you know, I, I guess at a wedding, right, you can ask a favor to the Godfather. And so he's practicing yeah. what he's going to say to the Godfather. And he's, he's like kind of this brute force guy working for, for the Godfather. He actually was an ex-wrestler in, in real life. And he was so nervous First off, I don't know if you know this, but he 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 botched every scene in that very first scene. He couldn't do that scene where he's asking a favor of Marlon Brando. So they switched the script so he's just practicing the lines. And so that would explain his nervousness later on. So then they're able to use these kind of failed scenes. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And and but in this one one of the things he's practicing is he's saying over and over again, I believe in America. And and it's it's this idea of America as opposed to 
just worshiping, you know, an institution or the government or whatever. It's this idea that America is the place where innovation happens, where creativity happens, where frontiers are crossed. And I think when you say the Godfather is about America, it's really about this idea of America and, and yep. hopefully America still lives up to those ideals. hundred percent. There's a, and there's so many scenes in the movie that do show the, like, like you mentioned, right. It's like showing kind of both ways and, and the, and, and what one path might lead you to. And uh, the one that really struck out to me was uh, a lot of people remember this line, you know, you know, uh, uh, leave leave the gun, take the cannolis. So when that basically a hit is happening uh, out in the fields, but there's a there's an image, amazing a framing where in the background is a Statue of Liberty, and in the foreground is where the hit or the dumping of the body happens. So that was like the visual of it is just spectacular. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's really and 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 then also I think of like Godfather too when they're when Michael moves out to Las Vegas and wants to go there, and then the very slick you know, non-Italian white guy, senator sort of yeah. re really trashes him for his Italian roots. And yet uh, Michael's, you know, more about, entre he, he wants to be out of crime. He wants to be an entrepreneur in, in Las Vegas. And yeah. it's just, he's, he goes up against this racism uh, in order to do it. There's a, oh, we could do a, honestly a whole nother episode about Godfather too, but there are so many great tidbits like uh, uh, in the making of the second one. Uh, Coppola didn't even want to do the second one, but uh, they gave him so much money. He just did it. Uh, but uh, the other part I want to say about regarding American capitalism is, yeah, you, you nailed it. The very first scene, the very first words of the movie are, I believe in America. Right, that's said by the uh, the Undertaker. Oh, oh yeah, right. Yeah. I'm sorry. It was said by Amer uh, uh, the the funeral guy. The, uh, his name was uh, Amerigo Bonacera. Like not even like slightly subtle. It's like his name's Amerigo, and the very first words were, "I believe in America." And then he tried the American way to solve uh, the rape of his daughter, where he tried to get the police to do something about it, but the quote unquote American way didn't work. So he's coming to the other Sicilian way. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's amazing how many how how deep these things go in the in the movie. And then, okay, so Francis Ford Coppola finally they accept him as the director. They accept Marlon Brando and Al Pacino as the actors. The script, I guess, like any script, gets written and rewritten a bunch of times. But at least Mario Puzo was was involved in it. Um, were there other things that that the the studio tried to to botch? That was, uh, those were the main one. The budget was the other one that you touched on. They wanted to film in St. Louis, uh, do it in the 70s, uh, set in the 70s instead of uh, post-World War II. So it didn't have to redo all the, uh, all the sets and the costumes. But uh, yeah, those were the main ones, to be honest. And then once after that scene happened, it was, you know, Coppola just finished it. And uh, it went, uh, it, it, it premiered on uh, March of, uh, 14th, 1972. So 50 years ago uh, at, at a New York theater. Uh, Robert Evans was friends with Henry Kissinger, actually, and took him to the premiere. And Henry Kissinger actually says something which I think you will appreciate from, uh, you are talking about anti-heroes earlier. Kissinger said that this movie was so good because it made you cheer for a character like Vito Corleone, who objectively is a bad person, right? Yeah. Like, killed hundreds of people, runs a mob family. But because it was framed around family and, and loyalty, uh, you were much less... Uh, to think or feel that way in the negative sense. Well, it's interesting because then you look at this this period 30 years later in the OOs, you had The Sopranos, like you said, you had Breaking Bad, you had The Wire, yep. even Mad Men, Don Draper's not a good guy. Right. But he's the hero. Anti-hero. Yeah, yeah, he's the anti-hero. And that became like a, a huge thing for a while. I don't even know, it probably still exists now, but 
but it was really the the start in television of of the antihero. Yep. And it all I think it all I can't think of a movie before The Godfather. I mean, I guess you could argue Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca is a little bit of an antihero, right. but he's he's really turns out to be a hero. There, there's never there's never at any point you could say Michael Corleone is a, is a hero. Whereas No, exactly. It, Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca does turn out to be a hero. So, uh it's it's interesting. In fact, Michael is such a bad dude. It's crazy, right? Like, yeah. at the end of Godfather 2, it, it's just him sitting in the chair. It's, it, it, it's literally showing that he has completely sold his soul to the devil. Yeah. Like he killed his own brother to something he, for, to protect the family. He killed his own brother to protect the family. That's how absurd it was. Yeah. Yeah. No, he. he He's never good, and and Breaking Bad, the guy's never good. Like you, you sort of feel like he's good because you don't see all the damage the the drugs cause. Right. But but he's never good. Tony Soprano is nonstop a bad guy. He's never a good guy. But again, you're quote unquote kind of cheering for them, right? Like because that's just the way it's framed. Totally, like, they're the protagonists. You're you're following their story. And so it's interesting, though, in, in a broader light, it's interesting that something that is so. I mean. The Godfather is obviously not only the one of the most critically received movies of all time, it also was for a short period of time the, the biggest box office hit ever. I think Star Wars replaced it or Jaws replaced it. But uh uh so it was commercially a huge success. It was critically, you know, arguably it might have been the biggest critical success, the most commercial critical success ever, still to this day. Oh, like that combo? Yeah, I I would uh I actually did not know how successful it was commercially until I dug a little bit deeper. But as you mentioned, right? If you did inflation adjusted, like this thing is going to be close to a bill. Yeah. And and so so it, it does suggest though that because it was so hard to make, you have to wonder about a lot of things in life. Like, like you know, you could say, oh, it was lucky that it was made, but you really need it wasn't that the luck happened in a in this sort of haphazard random way, the way you think luck occurs. Al Pacino became Michael Corleone because he had somehow proven himself to Francis Ford Coppola and Francis Ford Coppola used his reputation to keep pushing Al Pacino into the role until the studio yep. accepted it. Like there was persistence there. Mario Puzo was, was giving up as a writer, but he was persistent. He, he put everything he had into making this novel and it became one of the greatest novels ever. You know, and then the fact that Francis Ford Coppola had some independent power outside of the studio. He had this American zoetrope, stu his own studio, and he, you know, it was after twelve directors rejected it. So this was like their last shot, really. And and this was the, the director that was going to be acceptable to Italian Americans. He had a little enough influence to have it shot in New York as opposed to St. Louis. There was all this background. It was like they were all standing on a mountain in order to get lucky. No, hundred percent. And uh, one of the books that I bought, kind of. Uh very eloquently put everything you mentioned, all the obstacles. So the book is called The Annotated Godfather. Uh, the author is Jenny M. Jones. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola helped kind of put this together, but basically just took the script and had all his notes from the original script. But uh, she said this, one can't help but marvel at how the Godfather ever got made. Every conceivable obstacle stood in its way. A writer didn't want to write it, so that's Puzo. A studio didn't want to produce it, that was Paramount. Uh, no film director wanted to touch it. 12 people rejected it, a cast of unknowns outside of Brando, and a community, the Italian-Americans, tried to stop it from happening. In fact, the leader of the Italian-American community, civics group that tried to stop it, was the son of one of the five families, of the mob families. So, like, serious obstacles to this getting made. Yeah, and, and I guess the, the lesson in that is 
A, you know, be persistent and B, make sure you deserve your luck in the sense that this wasn't Mario Puzo's first novel. It was his third. It, you know, Francis Ford Coppola already had some, some oomph behind him. Al Pacino, I believe, had already done Dog Day Afternoon and some other movies. So at least he was acceptable, even though they didn't want him. Uh, and, you know, on and on, like they, they kind of, and, and also the fact that it's a very interesting thing that I didn't know, like George Lucas, Brian De Palma, Scorsese, Spielberg, Spielberg, all these guys had kind of grew up together as a scene. And you see that in every industry. Like, like you think about the beat writers in the fifties, you know, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, William S. Burroughs, they all went to Columbia together or all these artists from each period. They all kind of like were roommates together and then they blew up as artists you know, in the forties or in the tens or whatever, like scenes tend to happen in groups, like cultural scenes. A hundred percent. It's interesting. And, and tech too. Like look at the PayPal mafia as a scene. Exactly. You know, all those guys sort of grew up together in Silicon Valley. And then now I've started the biggest companies on, on the planet, but they all started off as employees of PayPal or founders of PayPal. So, so things happen like that in a scene. So if you want to be lucky, kind of find your scene, even if it's virtual or online. And, and if you love this, if you love what you're doing, you got to be persistent with it. Like obviously Mario Puto loved writing. Francis Ford Coppola wasn't in the directing business for the money. He, he loved directing and, and so on. And by the way, they, they didn't like the music at first. The music for The Godfather is amazing. <laughs> it's iconic. <laughs> I know. I don't, I don't even know how you could not like that music. But I'll, I'll tell you one last fact about The Godfather that I bet, I bet you didn't know. Or maybe you did know it, but I, I don't know. But uh, you know the, the scene where Tom's got to go out to Hollywood and make the director an offer he can't refuse in order to get the character who's, who's the Frank Sinatra character in, in a movie? Yeah. And then he leaves a, a horse's head in the bed and it's this bloody horse's head. Do you know that was a real horse's head? Oh, that was, I, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. They didn't, they didn't like cut off a horse's head. They got it from a dog food company. Oh my yeah. goodness. Oh so my that goodness. actor who well, played that director, he woke up in bed with a horse's head right there. Like it's gotta be pretty disgusting. <laughs> that, that probably, that probably uh, gave why the scene was so well and the scream was so hearty. What, why'd you do this one? Like, what, what is The Godfather? Obviously, it's one of your favorite movies, but like, why this one? Yeah, a part of the 50th anniversary, I got caught up in the hype. Uh, I, I myself, uh, I don't know if I mentioned the last part, but I, I have sold a film script. Uh, my, oh, yeah, you did. Yeah. I've sold a film script. Like, I had, I had Hollywood dreams ages ago, uh, never came to fruition, but uh, uh, I've always been very enchanted and uh, by Hollywood history. So this is definitely part of it. That was my interest in it. And I, I, I was hoping to package it because, I mean, if I didn't know some of these things, like to the depth that I wrote about, I knew that a lot of my audience wouldn't know about it because I care about this a lot more than they do. You should, uh, you should do like 10 of these and write like a, uh, and just staple them together and publish a book like The Strange Iconic History of Hollywood. So like do Star Wars, do Casablanca, do... Uh, uh, you know, there's lots of like weird little movies that now completely form our culture, yep. but all of them almost didn't make, get made. No, hundred percent. There are, there are a lot. Uh, um, I mean, even one more recently, I wrote one that got pretty viral is about how uh, the first Iron Man didn't almost didn't get made because nobody wanted Robert Downey Jr. to do it. He uh, was yeah. still, he was not a, a leading figure at that time. He was you know, he'd been in prison. He's dealing with drugs and alcohol abuse issues. He had kind of blown up his reputation as an actor, similar to what Brando did to himself. But uh, no, I love that idea. I think I'll do some more and I'd love to hop back on to, 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 to retell some of those stories with you. Oh yeah. Anytime. And, uh, oh, one other thing, since you've, you've written a script, you'll appreciate this. Mario Puzo had never studied script writing uh, before he wrote The Godfather. He completely 
wrote that script with Francis Ford Coppola without studying screenwriting at all. Same with Godfather Part Two. And so finally, he figured, you know what? I'm going to be writing scripts for movies. I better look at a book. So he picks up a book about screenwriting. Chapter one is a breakdown of The Godfather. <laughs> so <laughs> well, he figured, oh, I, I already wrote the book, so I don't need to read it anymore. Well, there you go, right? This goes back to something that uh, I'm sure theme you touched on before. A lot of people don't know what's going on, right? Nobody knows anything. No, and then it goes to show you, you don't necessarily need to know the standard techniques. Sometimes you throw the book out and that's how you create something new. Exactly. And that's, and that's exactly what they did. Yeah. I'll, I'll actually, I'd like to leave with one last tidbit is uh, we're talking about coming up, uh, groups coming up together. And you'd, uh, you'd mentioned Spielberg, uh, Scorsese, uh, uh, Coppola, yeah. and Lucas. So uh, this just related to Godfather 2, but Coppola wanted Martin Scorsese to direct Godfather 2. So that's a nice tidbit. Oh, really? And, I didn't know and, that. Yeah, ended up not happening, but uh, that would have been, been interesting. It probably would have been equally as good. Well, maybe not equally, but uh, Scorsese is no slouch. Yeah, no, and it's, sometimes it's hard. Like it, it, sometimes I have to r remind myself who directed what. Like For a long time, I thought Scorsese directed the conversation, and then I realized, no, it was Coppola. Like, they have a very similar style. Yeah, and they're from the kind of edgy New York uh, that, that, like you said, thematically similar. I think they went to nursery school together. In, uh, uh, do you live, I forget, you don't live in New York, right? Have you ever lived in New York? No, I, I live in Vancouver. There's a school in uh, Chinatown, or it was then Little Italy, now it's Chinatown, uh, where all these guys went to school together. So I think Coppola, Scorsese, maybe Robert De Niro, I forget. But they all kind of grew up together as well, uh, like literally grew up together. So, well, it's like you said, the group's coming up together. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, um, all right, well, look, this was the Godfather Trung fan. You always have so many interesting things to say. And where's the best place for someone to find your newsletter and get access to all your stuff? At, at Trung T fan uh, at Twitter is the best one. Uh, I also do the Not Investment Advice podcast. My uh, newsletter is on the uh, Twitter uh, bio. It's with a new company called Work Week. We kind of partnered up together on that. They're just helping me on just uh, helping me. Basically, they're helping with all, all the creative stuff so I can get to do more creative stuff like this. Yeah, and let, let's do one in a couple of weeks about which companies are not what you expected they would be. <laughs> I That's a deal. That's a deal, James. Excellent. All right. Thanks a lot, Trug. See you soon. All right. Thank you, guys. I got a boogie to pick up my kid, but I really appreciate that.